Welcome first-time listeners and returners to the Sports Deli. The Sports Deli is sponsored by SportRx. SportRx is the leader in sports prescription eyewear. You can find them online at sportrx.com. And don't forget to enter the code DELI10 at checkout for your special 10% discount. We also want to give props to PSK Collective. Be inspired in PSK, where their clothing promotes inclusivity, empowerment, and equality by supporting female athletes through the Women's Sports Foundation. You can find them online at pskcollective.com or at walmart.com. We also want to thank citylokes.com, where you can get your own personalized hats and phone cases, tees, accessories, and much, much more. I ordered two hats, and they're amazing. Uh, one of them says the Sports Deli, and it has a California license plate, and the other one has a Michigan license plate and says, Speak Up and Dribble, Black Lives Matter. So check them out at citylokes.com, and don't forget to enter the code the Sports Deli at checkout for your special 10% discount. And we're so excited to finally be supporting Moolah Kicks. They're dropping in May of 2021. They are the first female-only brand basketball shoe, and you can find them online at Moolah, Moolah is M-O-O-L-A-H, kicks, like shoes, K-I-C-K-S, plural, moolahkicks.com. Again, much thanks to Natty White, the founder of Moolah Kicks. You can always send us an email to thesportsdeli at gmail.com. And you can also DM us on Instagram at Mike Hootner or on Twitter at Michael Hootner. A little bit about Hootie Hoot. I coached college basketball for 23 years, 15 on the men's side and 8 on the women. And I now coach at a low-income first-generation high school girls basketball here in San Diego. I played four years of college basketball. I'm a life coach. I have a beautiful daughter. I'm a professional basketball skills trainer. We love to share space with our guests here in the Sports Deli to talk about the intersection between race and sports, mental health and sports, equality, empowerment, empathy, leadership, education, sports, and solutions. We talk a lot about white privilege. We want to help mobilize, listen, learn, and pay it forward. Remember, your voice matters when fighting systemic racism. Read a book, acknowledge your white privilege, watch a movie about institutional racism, call your local or state representatives, and or have a conversation with someone that doesn't look like you. We have to change the economic, educational, police, housing, prison, and voting suppression narratives that currently need to be changed in this country. And the only way to do that is to listen and learn and then help be a part of the mobilization and change that we want to see. We're so honored that you're joining us today and we hope that you can grab your favorite deli sandwich or bagel and your favorite beverage and let's do this together in the sports deli. We are honored to be joined on this third day of Ramadan by Super Bowl champ Ryan Harris who hails to us from St. Paul, Minnesota. He was drafted by the Denver Broncos as a third round pick in the 2007 NFL draft. And in the 2008 season, Harris only allowed one and a half sacks for his quarterback that season. 
He had three different stints with the Denver Broncos, and during his ninth year in the league, the third time was a charm as the starting left tackle for the Peyton Manning-led Broncos is when he finally was able to call himself a Super Bowl champion. He played for some amazing coaches like Mike Shanahan, Josh McDaniel, Gary Kubiak, and Andy Reid during his 10-year NFL career. But it was Mike Tomlin in Pittsburgh who he called the best leader he ever had. Played his college ball at Notre Dame, as you can see by his hat, instead of Michigan, unfortunately, as he was recruited by these two powerhouses, as well as Miami and Iowa. His birthday is the day after mine and shares one with Anthony Davis from the Lakers and longtime NFL tight end Greg Olson, who not only was born on the same day, but the same year as Ryan. He's played with Peyton Manning, J.J. Watt, Brandon Marshall, Alex Smith, Ben Roethlisberger, Antonio Brown, and Champ Bailey, just to name a few. While in high school, he started on MTV's True Life for the documentary, I Want the Perfect Body. He played his first game ever at Heinz Field in Pittsburgh while at Notre Dame against Pitt, and his last game ever was also at Heinz Field playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Irony at its best. It's been the Radio Color Commentary announcer for the Fighting Irish during football games and has his own radio show in Denver, Colorado. His family's moved 18 times in five years at one point. He had nine different surgeries during his career. His kids and family mean the world to him. His wife, Jamie, and Ryan have three children. And among his charitable work, Harris is involved with Big Brothers and Big Sisters of America and Wish of a Lifetime, which helps seniors eliminate feelings of isolation and have more purposeful life. He's also founded the Education for Elevation Campaign, a program that sent six youths and refugee camps to university here in the United States. He learned how to breathe from an MMA coach to learn how to lengthen his breath because Peyton Manning's system required him to run more plays more often. And you don't want to miss later in the very famous rapid fire this or that segment, Ryan's answer to the question of what was Peyton Manning's biggest practical joke ever. Mindset for Mastery is a book he wrote that you can find on Amazon.com. talks about how to find your greatness based on your mindset. He's a part of the Altitude Radio Network in Denver where he hosts. He's a devout Muslim and believes wholeheartedly in forgiveness. He loves surfing and reading and believes in celebrating the little successes in life, whether it's flossing your teeth or choosing your meals. He learned to be comfortable from embracing the uncomfortable and is a copious note taker. He's been a speaker for talks at Google. He believes it is your right to be extraordinary. You can find him at ryanharris68.com, which is his website. You can also find him on Instagram at ryanharris underscore 68 and on Twitter at salams, salams plural is S-A-L-A-A-M-S underscore from underscore 68. Well, a huge Super Bowl warm welcome to the Sports Daily. Ryan, appreciate it. Much love, man. Thank you very much for the introduction, Michael. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, uh, well-deserved. Got that Notre Dame hat working. That's what I'm talking about. Hey, man, got to. <laughs> All right. What the collection you got behind you? <laughs> yeah, I just uh, accumulated it over the years. And then when I started this, uh, really after the whole George Floyd thing and, and yesterday, uh, which is where I met you in Clubhouse, uh, yesterday was something. It was I was on one um, room for like six hours. It was it was it was definitely emotional, you know, talking about Dante Wright and uh, his murder. And I don't think we have a choice but to continue the conversation. 
unfortunately, it's under these circumstances, but um, don't want to be sad and uncomfortable all day, every day, but um, I would feel even more complicit if I didn't listen to these stories and the plights of the black and brown community to hear what they're feeling and what they're thinking and how they're hurting and, um, you know, what they suggest happens next uh, going forward after another murder. Um, so listen, I, I had a player in college. I coached college basketball a long time. And uh, so I remember it was probably around 2002, something like that. Because every year Ramadan, it moves a day, right? Or a week, yeah, something like that. Yeah, 10 days, 10, 10 days, 10 moves, days. Up, yeah. moves up. Okay. So uh, I remember uh, when I was doing research on you, uh, him vividly, you know, how he would just, the first hour of practice, <laughs> he, he would be solid. And then all of a sudden they're, coach, man, I, I don't know if I can make it through practice. I'm really tired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so explain to people that don't necessarily know, you know, uh, what Ramadan is, which is just a part of, uh, you know, your spiritual, um, you know, beliefs, uh, you know, sort of like I'm Jewish, right? So it's like, in some ways, like the Sabbath from sundown to sunup, you can't work, you can't spend money, you can't drive, you can't turn the lights on, you can't, can't turn the heater on, you can't have sex and, and uh, try and uh, conceive children, though. That's one difference, right? So tell, tell us a little <laughs> bit about it. Yeah, well, and, and again, Michael, it's an honor to join you. Uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of everything you've done in life, and you've really helped sport, you know what I mean, move forward. Um, you know, for, for me, you know, Islam is, is uh, you know, it, it began, it came to me because of um, me seek, searching out how to be connected to God personally. And it's the only one of the Abrahamic faiths that, uh, I mean, in the Quran, it says Christians, Jews, Sabians and that and those who walk a straight path will be with you in heaven so it's very inclusive and you know you don't know if I prayed five times today or not um, but you know and, and to your to your to, you know to your players you know aspect in the month of Ramadan we don't do not eat or drink any fluids as the sun is up and for me it's really a return you know Muslims have 99 names for God and my favorite is Al-Kahar which means the irresistible so no matter where I go in life um, you know, I will return to God and, and I will uh, return to the feeling and, and, and it's just the irresistible connectedness to me that we all have, whether that's, you know, Yahweh or Jesus, whatever you call God in your life. Uh, you know, I think, you know, to, to me, God, God wants us to be connected to each other, you know, more than, you know, what names we call God. So for me, Islam has been great. I mean, Ramadan teaches you sacrifice. Now, your player, uh, you know, um, I had some teammates who were Muslim who fasted while play, playing and practicing. Uh, if you do have a hardship, which is anything physical or, um, you know, women who are pregnant, uh, if you're old of age, if you're breastfeeding or, you know, there are there are there are some conditions in which you don't have to fast and you can and feed a, a homeless person for the day you miss. So while I was in the NFL, you know, I fed a lot of I, I, it was a good thing for me to be connected to the community to serve food, you know, at the, at the homeless shelter. And, uh, and, and it gave me just eye-opening experiences to the working poor, to the city that I live in now here in Denver, uh, but also Kansas City and, and Houston, cities that I did things in. So, um, you know, Ramadan just is all about returning to your faith. You know, read, you're, you're encouraged to read the entire Quran during Ramadan. You're encouraged to forgive 
those who have wronged you in Ramadan, you're encouraged to celebrate with family and friends. You know, as a Muslim, you're not supposed to go three days without talking to your siblings. So these are all things that you kind of return to during Ramadan and return to that irresistible connectedness that, that I believe we have through God. It's interesting. Uh, so you're saying that you gave to the homeless because you weren't able to make it through practice. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and I had Hussein and Hamza, Hussein and Hamza Abdullah were teammates of mine at different times. And Hussein, you know, they're both, uh, Hussein's a corner and he was with, he was with me in uh, Kansas City and Hamza was with me in, uh, in, in Minnesota, but I'm sorry, in, um, in Denver, but I'll tell you something. Uh, I told those guys too, Hey man, you guys don't hit anybody during practice. You know, That's you're going true. against JJ Watt. He's going to put That's his right. hands on you. You That's know, right. you're going against, uh, you know, Vaughn Miller, they're going to get their hands on you. So, um, you know, I just had to go about it my way, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you, man, I was really, really scared after I retired, you know, because I was like, Oh man, like I got no excuse. I can't say, you know, Hey, Michael, I'm practicing. Like, no, Mike, like, I gotta go. So my, and it was, you know, at that time it was like four or five in the morning and nine at night. So, but now it's a little easier. And when I became Muslim, you know, it was during, I was 14 and it was during the winter months. So, you know, it was like, Hey, wake up by seven and eat breakfast and you can eat at four 30. So I, I kind of got, uh, I came in early and then when I came back, it was pretty tough. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, my best friend, um, he's white, his wife's black. Uh, he's atheist, and she is Christian. And so I've talked to him a lot about this, because, uh, you know, he and I were both raised Jewish, you know, had our bar mitzvahs and everything. And he always has said that he finds it fascinating that somebody can um, pray to something that he, in his mind is just a story. You know, to him, it's mm -hmm. not necessarily real, but but the concept of uh, the greater good, which, you know, all of us understand who played sports, right? You're giving yourself to something that's bigger than yourself. The sum of the parts yeah. is greater than the parts themselves. It's a very interesting concept because, you know, uh, mosques or the church or synagogues obviously do a lot more beyond, you know, praying and, and um, you know, the things that people do you know, on the surface, you know, helping the community and things like that, which is what you talked about, helping the homeless and things. So it's, it's, it's definitely very interesting. We haven't really talked about it that much on this show. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up and, and sharing that with everybody because the, the peripheral or the byproducts of someone's spiritual path, uh, you know, can teach us a lot about life. And, and, and really what's, I think, important, as you mentioned, after uh, sports, especially for professional athletes, is being comfortable in your own skin yeah. and being at peace, which is something that we'll talk about later that a lot of guys uh, aren't comfortable with and have a really, really difficult time, whether they don't have that spiritual uh, grounded part of their life or economic stability, you know, and, and those types of things. So um, I think from my perspective and doing research and, and prepping for the show, I've noticed that that is something that definitely helped you you said at 14 years old you know that's something that you have carried with you throughout all of your chapters in your journey so I, find, I applaud you for that and I'm glad you've had that because it's obviously brought you stability during a lot of ups and downs I would imagine oh absolutely uh, thank you and, and congratulations on your bar mitzvah I know it's tough <laughs> to get through that man you know that's not like one uh, mistake too uh, I was so irritated <laughs> oh man you know but and, and um and you know I I I just I need I, I'm excited to learn more I was gonna have my first um 
is it the Shabbat dinner? I was going to have yeah. my first Shabbat dinner before, um, before COVID hit. And I was wow. going to do, um, um, there was another holiday that was coming up. I think it was Yom Kippur. I was set to yeah. do with some of my friends who are Jewish. So, wow. um, so I, I just know that, you know, our bar mitzvah was not just a party. That's a lot of work. <laughs> so it is a lot of work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I appreciate but, you know, I'll tell you, you know, Islam made me a better teammate in many ways. You know, one of the things as Muslims, you are to give 99 excuses if somebody wrongs you. So think about if you're in a game and somebody drops a ball or, you know, makes a bad play or has a penalty, instead of being upset, it's my duty beyond being a good teammate to give 99 excuses as to why that happened. And for me, that turned into encouragement. Hey, Mike, you're going to get the next one, man. Don't worry about it. And, and Benny Fowler, one of my favorite teammates, uh, he had a drop in a preseason game in the, in, in, in the end zone. And uh, he came back, you could tell his head was down, you know, and I said, hey, man, don't worry, you're going to catch the next, next one, it's going to be a touchdown. Two plays later, he catches a touchdown. He kind of looked at me like, dude, you believed in me at that moment. Like, and, and in that moment for him, I'm sure it was like, I dropped a touchdown, I'm not going to make this team, I'm going to miss the Super Bowl, because we knew that year that we had a special team. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's just one of the many small ways. You know, as a Muslim, I'm supposed to give a pen ready to use. As a Muslim, I'm supposed to uh, host a guest for three days until I ask them their name, you know, mm -hmm. and these are things that, you know, really allowed to need to focus on things when I was isolated. You know, Mike Tomlin at the Steelers always says, you want to be successful, get used to being lonely. And for me, I was always mm -hmm. with my faith, uh, you know, wherever I was, whether that was at Notre Dame or, you know, when you move out to, when I moved out to Denver the first time, as you mentioned, I've been here three times, <laughs> you know, I didn't know a single soul. I mean, I literally had cows as neighbors. And, uh, and so, um, you know, who do you talk to? What do you do? And, and focusing on how to be a better person while being a better Muslim, um, you know, really just really just made me overall more connected to the people and the communities that I lived and worked in. Yeah, that's awesome. And the more that we can realize that we have more things in common than differences. Oh, man. And you apply that to obviously the multi-layered issues that we have going on, you know, we'll, we'll definitely move the needle and, and keep the conversation going and hopefully mobilize better and more efficiently so that we can change some of these narratives. Tell everybody uh, what's in the showcase over your left shoulder for the people that are just listening and not watching. Yeah. So, so that's my Super Bowl Jersey uh, behind nice. us. The one I actually wore in the Super Bowl, still the grass stains on it. The hat that I yeah. wore on the field after winning the Super Bowl and that's cool. taking my picture with Tim Cook. That, I mean, it's a crazy moment, Mike. Wow. You know, it's like, so much is happening and I look over and there's Tim Cook and I'm like, Oh, let's get a photo. And he's like, yeah, Crazy. my wife goes, uh, he goes, email that to me. <laughs> my wife goes, what's your email? And, and you know, and he gives it and it's just kind of like, she had no idea who he was, you know? And uh, so, I mean, that was such a special moment. And I took a selfie with Peyton when we won the AFC championship game and my, my hometown newspaper put that on. And then some of the confetti that was actually spilled on the field of the wow. Super Bowl is in there. So yeah, I see that. it's uh, it, it's a peace of mind that I love. And, it's something I'll never forget. Yeah, that's amazing. We'll, we'll definitely delve into that in a, in a little bit. But I, I wanted to maybe pivot a little bit from where I was going to go because, you know, you mentioned some of the things that you did with regards to, you know, the Sabbath and, and uh, just, you know, learning about different faiths. And I remember when Steve Lavin was on, he talked about how John Wooded at 99 years old was doing a deep dive into <clears throat> religions and reading multiple books at almost 100 years old to try and find the common themes with all these religions, because it was just fascinating to him. Because like I said, there's more similarities between us than there are differences. 
-hmm. And so uh, obviously there's been a lot of different things we could talk about with regards to this racial reckoning, but it made me think of um, Julian Edelman who just retired and you know his invitation to a couple different people yeah on jackson being one and uh i can't remember his name for the clippers who got who ended up getting uh, miles leonard miles, miles leonard. leonard yeah and so uh when you see things like that happen i've said mm-hmm. on this show many times and i didn't necessarily think this way because i would not, not necessarily be cynical but i would roll my eyes or shake my head but anything short of a murder like with dante wright um it's an opportunity when someone's uneducated, in denial, or just an idiot or ignorant to continue this conversation. And so do you look at it the same way? It's more half, the, the glass is half full, you know, hey, okay, that was stupid, but let's now keep the conversation going so we don't have to sweep it under the carpet. You're listening to an interview with Super Bowl champion, Ryan Harris, right here in the Sports Deli. For Dr. J and Coach K, I am Hootie Hoot flying solo today. We're so excited that you've joined us. And you can find more information about Ryan on his website at ryanharris68.com. And he played both right and left tackle during his 10-year NFL career. You don't want to miss his answer later in the very famous rapid fire this or that segment where Ryan answers whether he preferred playing right or left tackle in the NFL. And now back to this incredible interview with Ryan Harris, Super Bowl champion from the Denver Broncos right here in the Sports Deli. Well, I'm glad you brought up Julian Edelman because, you know, the conversation about him being in the Hall of Fame, I said this on my show, listen, he might get, you know, he's number one, his advocate is you know the greatest quarterback of all time number two he had a huge catch in the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history right number three his work off the field has been amazing you know it really has and at the end of the day for me it's always well what's the opportunity you know a lot of people look at problems a lot of people you know most people look at hey there's a problem here there's a problem here and I get that hey if you're using this language clearly because you know some of the language that you know Miles Leonard used I'd never been around people who'd use that language you know we had a sports host here in Denver who, who dropped the N-word. And to me, it's hard to say that, you know, it's hard to hear somebody say, that's not who I am if that word comes out, you know, like, so, so that's one thing. You can focus on that, on that negative and on that problem. But for me, what's the opportunity? And, you know, let's just be consistent in our teachings. You know, Christians talk about agape love, you know, Arabic's a beautiful language for a lot of reasons. And one of the things people miss about Muslims speaking Arabic is, you know, when you say Aki, it's not just brother, it's my brother. Amriki is American, but my American. So there's this connectedness, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love to know that the word for love in, in the Jewish tradition, but, you know, all of our books have stories of people who were wronged who did not stop there, you know, whether it's Joseph and his brothers or uh, it's Noah or, you know, things like that. When we're wrong, the easy thing to do is to stop. But the stronger thing to do is to engage. And I actually had a huge transformation because of a uh, Jewish student society that was I read about in Florida. At the time, there was one of the uh, there was like the lead young right wing nationalist uh, went to a university. I think he was related to David Duke or something like that. And so he had all these anti-Semitic views. And instead of um, protesting him and trying to knock him down at the university, the Jewish Student Association at the school invited him to a Shabbat dinner, 
and he didn't say anything they said for the first one but then he showed up again and so he kept showing up and they said it was the fourth time he showed up he started talking and when he started speaking he was talking that he realized everything he taught was wrong so when somebody does use language that offends us how can they learn they're wrong if we don't engage with them you know we have such an opportunity in that moment where someone has open hands they are embarrassed to show them that what they've learned was wrong. And I don't know about you, Michael, but no, I don't believe any of us handle that well, right? What we've learned was wrong. Every Packers fan is evil, you know what I mean? <laughs> like that growing up in Minnesota. And if you're gonna tell me I'm wrong, there better be some good cheese curds, right? That we're, we're, right. we're discussing this over. And so that's the opportunity, that's the strength. And in my opinion, that's what we're called to do as teammates, as fellow citizens, to engage there. And that and that young man who was the rising star in the right-wing party is now one of the greatest advocates for interfaith dialogue and, and, and real teachings of love. And he wouldn't have gotten there if they didn't invite something as simple as inviting someone to dinner, which, which science shows us. When you eat with a stranger, your brain builds neural pathways that sees them as family. And so it's just such an opportunity we have when somebody uh, opposes us or says something hurtful. Yes, it's kind of unfair that you have to mantle that, but the change you can make by engaging and giving opportunity is something that we're all called to do. It's really interesting from, from my perspective because I find it to be a double-edged sword because on the one hand, people of color, people in the black and brown community are so exhausted uh, besides the other stuff, scared, uh, still having to have the talk with their kids, you know, all of those things, but exhausted. And there's this zero tolerance mentality on the one hand, but then you're talking about the fact that not necessarily someone trying to co-op something, but from an educational perspective, how are we supposed to learn? Like I was on clubhouse. I told you for f- close to six hours yesterday. And this one Jewish guy chimed in, He's read over a hundred books on the black and brown community. And he was asking for specific terminology and, you know, how he handles these scenarios. And, and is there pressure, do you feel in the black and brown community to um, educate white people even now? And, and if so, is it, is there a different vibration to it than there used to be? Is it more like, accepted that someone's stupid and and because the conversations are more uh less taboo i guess than they used to be well it's it it, your life depends on you educating people who are caucasian right and 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 for me this vibration is different you know vic fangio the head coach of the broncos got railed for saying hey you know i don't see racism in the nfl and people railed him for that and i understand what he was saying right in his world as a defensive coordinator, racism doesn't exist. You don't make a decision based on race, whether that's calling a coverage or playing a player. That's just, that's not in the routine. And where Vic Fangio got caught is where I think a lot of people who, a lot of white people have been caught in the last year of, I don't practice this in my life. I assume that the majority of people were like me and we were just learning about a few bad apples. Well, that's not the truth. And so now I believe everyone's seeing the same issue the same way, right? Like Michael, I know from from people you know that I know as well, 
that you, you have not practiced racism and hatred in your life. And it's easy in our life to think that other people do that because that's what's being a, a good you know, follower of the Jewish faith is, a good follower of the Christian faith. But you know, that's what we're supposed to do. But we realize that we've, we, that's not what everybody does. You know, I had, I had a, a, somebody who I respect and work with say, you know, what if we, are we teaching racism? I said, well, you know, we, I was talking with my friends. I wonder if we're teaching racism, if we should just stop teaching it. I said, well, are we going to stop teaching about World War II? We're going to stop teaching about the Holocaust? Oh, no, 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 no. Well, why would we stop teaching about racism? You know, and oh, by the way, when you had that conversation, did you have it with the person of color? You know, there was a, there was a, there was a writer here in Denver who just wrote an article about Major League Baseball bringing the game to Denver. And his point, you know, was, you know, hey, you know, the, the voting, there's two more days of in-person voting and, you know, there's one click, you can get an absentee ballot. Well, that's, that's facetious. And I asked him, I said, what made you write a voter suppression piece without talking to a single person of color? And he said, well, I was just talking about the money and where it's actually going to go as to the people who we want to help the most. I said, well, I understand that. But when you say, you know, Georgia has two more days of voting, in-person voting than Denver, you're, 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 draw, you're making it a political statement. And oh, by the way, yeah, that happens. But every, every single 100 percent of voters in Denver get a mail-in ballot. You and I, Michael, have less stamps because we send more emails. You know, we have less in-person voting days in Colorado because you literally can sign your name right. and put, close the envelope and put it in the mailbox, you know? So of course there's going to be less days like that. So context is really being, yeah. I think, re-examined. And I know that all of us are seeing the same issue now and it's just not holding up to our beliefs as they once did. Yeah. It's definitely interesting. You're referring to the all baseball all-star game moving from uh, Atlanta to Denver. I want to, I want to go rewind a little bit. So you were quoted as saying my mother had me and then my father, and I call him my father because my father adopted me. So your earliest memories, he's always been there. Um, you said, I know firsthand the impact and power, not even in the words, but just in the presence example of having a man in my life to teach me, you know, how to put milk does into popcorn, we go to <laughs> movies, right. How to handle failure, all these things that every kid really wants to know how to do, how to be successful. And you said, because your father adopted me, uh, I've been a part of an amazing family my entire life. Um, and, you know, God bless you and, and him. Um, and, you know, I had uh, a number of experiences with men. Uh, my father committed suicide when I was nine. So um, sorry. Yeah. And that was, that was hard. It was, uh, my mom said a part of me died that day, which you can oh. imagine. Yeah, And uh, so I guess there's there's a couple layers to this one you identify as African-American or black or brown. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so um, how was it um, with a, uh, as an adopted kid, sort of, and, and how was it being black uh, in that community? um growing up you know were there things that you know we still see today that you were faced with or more so or you know did you did you get um teased or bullied any of those types of things yeah of course i mean i was uh 12 years old when i was first called nigger you know and it was brutal and um but i also learned at a young age that just because you know my mom's white and, and you know and as you see you know i'm african-american but I didn't belong in either camp, you know, and so I learned that right away. So I learned that, you know, even as much as, you know, people wanted equality, that there was a lack of equality within people of color. 
I also learned that, you know, while, while I may be lighter skin, people still consider me a threat, no matter if I was a Super Bowl champion or, I mean, I had a teacher tell me in, in high school, this is one after I've committed to Notre Dame, he said, you don't have to worry about this school thing, Ryan, you're just an athlete. Like, who would say that to a person, you know? So I learned that people still didn't see me as a human being, yeah. you know? And, and what I learned from my father is to let love guide what you do. My father loves my mother. And, you know, because she had a son that wasn't going to stop him from loving her. And parts of my family didn't want my dad to marry a white woman with a kid. And I'm very, so I, I'm born from a, a world where, you know, I understand our inconsistencies uh, in many levels, you know, but I'm also rare, man. I mean, Michael, I am Norwegian, German, uh, Lakota, African-American, you know, and Irish. I mean, so a lot of a lot of people had to break some rules having sex for me to exist, you know, and and I have a, a first generation uh, Chinese aunt, both um, wow. my my aunt and then my my mother's aunt married a black man. My youngest uncle, who's white, married a black woman, you know, and so my our, our family was just different, man. But that's our potential. Right. When we just follow love and we go to where we are curious our potential is so great and and so the best thing for me that i learned from my father was to to love first and also how to handle my anger how to i mean he explained racism to me at times and then he explained how you know as an african-american male i need black friends to just vent to sometimes you know because sometimes my white friends don't see the context or wouldn't see something. And whether I'm right or wrong, sometimes I just need to let that out, you know? So I learned so much about our potential as people, our inconsistencies as people, and how strong love can bring us to our, our greatest potential. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Um, you know, it's probably a topic for another day. Uh, some of the challenges that um, the black and brown community face uh, within their own communities just you know, to be uh, topic sensitive, especially right now in terms of, you know, what's going on and what's been going on since last summer. Uh, but, you know, I'd love to talk to you about that because I know Rashawn McLeod, who played at Duke, uh, who was on the show, uh, he wants to start a podcast and talk about these very things from economics to, uh, you know, absent fathers, you know, the disproportionate numbers of things that are going on in the black and brown community. Uh, generational wealth, uh, education, you know, th there, mm -hmm. there's obviously some things that um, white people need to recognize in terms of privilege and policy in order to bridge these gaps. And I think that's where a lot of the resistance I see now, right? Mm -hmm. Manhattan Beach is going to give a family back an $85 million estate that literally the city stole from its owners it stole right. it because they were black you know oh, yeah. and yeah. and you know and and i have a lot of friends because as you as you can probably tell i'm you know if you're racist i'm not upset i'm curious you know is heaven <laughs> segregated you know what i'm saying right. like what are we doing here mm -hmm. so you know and i often hear from my conservative friends well we got to go back to the nuclear family i said well how can you demand a return to family without addressing that over policing robs men from their communities and okay, you know, my dad was an, is an amateur cyclist. He got followed home twice by two police cars. And I'm talking about in the full gear until, they, until he pulled into our garage. You know, what happens to George Floyd's family? 
You know, you talk, you want to talk about looting. I'm, I absolutely am against looting and I'm against the looting of life and community. So how can we not address and reimagine policing and then say, where, why is there no nuclear family? You know, right. you, you can't just jump to an outcome without addressing the process. Yeah. And I really believe we're at this point where we're willing to look at new solutions. And here's my thing. Let's solve the problem, right? Let's make up for, let's make up for the issues that we've created. Let's right the wrongs in education and, and, and policing, not just policing, but the justice system, right? Yeah. Police are often just enforcing what the higher system has asked them to do. And let's do it and move on. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Let's stop carrying this with us. Yeah, and, and I've talked about this on almost every episode. It, what frustrates me is, A, the people that are in charge are so arrogant that they aren't listening to the collaborative voices and opinions of people that are actually living this stuff, uh, the, the fears and, and the uh, economic disparities and, and the uh, educational gaps. And why aren't we listening? Because that enriches the experience that brings greater depth to whatever we're talking about. And it's, it's, it's really ass backwards um economics and i heard somebody on, on clubhouse yesterday say there would be nine billion dollars more money made by white uh producers and directors uh if they had more black films because african americans and the black and brown community go to those types of movies but because they want so much control they they stay away from it like those types of things when you hear it it's just mind-blowing to me you know, Mike Tomlin had a had a has a saying comfort seeker, you know, he'd point to some players and say, hey, they're comfort seekers. And I think we really, you know, at some points we've gotten comfortable. You know, if you're if you have racism in you, you're comfortable because guess what, Michael, you and I, you know, Jewish and Muslim, we're the only two people on earth with our families and, and you've got, you know, meat and I've got wheat. We're traded. You know what I'm saying? We're not going to care what each other's race is or right. religion is. You got to eat. I got to eat. We're going to get this deal done. But when you talk about that fiscal responsibility, too, I mean, they say it's an average of a year and a half if you're proven innocent in jail to be released from jail. And here in Denver, it's forty three dollars to one hundred and ten dollars per day. So we're going to spend four thousand dollars on an innocent person in jail, you know, not to mention, you know, there's a case here that I was made aware of in Denver. Uh, a young kid stole, you know, he had three stolen credit cards, was caught at the supermarket buying groceries, a gallon of milk, and one lotto ticket. $350 crime, right? No one was injured. You couldn't tie him to the stolen credit cards. But because of this $350 crime, this youth is now looking at a minimum felony, a federal felony, a class two, a minimum of two to six years, two to six years for 350 bucks. I'm not saying it's right to steal. I'm saying we're going to spend $17,000 on a $350 nonviolent crime. We are smarter than this and we are more fiscally responsible than this. And that's just one of the many examples of how we waste money because of our comfort with racism. Well, mandatory minimums, three strikes and you're out. In terms of um, politics, it's been a blue and red issue. Both parties are, are guilty of it. And so you're right. We just got to get it right. Um, yeah. so someone tapped you on your shoulder during the Michigan game 
when you went to visit Notre Dame and, and said you wouldn't just be a number, but a part of the family. Is, is, is that why you uh, really, is that why you cho- chose Notre Dame over my, my Michigan Wolverines? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll, tell, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I didn't go to Michigan. <laughs> How about that? You know, um, I was blown away by Lloyd Carr and the facilities at Michigan. Um, and I went to their camp and they didn't offer me a scholarship. I didn't get a scholarship from Michigan. And then, you know, when something came out, why was, you know, they weren't in the top five. I said, well, Michigan didn't offer me a scholarship. And Lloyd Carr literally called my coach and family and was like, of course we offered Ryan a scholarship. We, you know, we talked to him right in my, I talked to him in my office and literally Miami, USC, Notre Dame. I got letters in the mail that say we're offering you a full grant and aid. So that was my first kind of, you know, there's something going on here that I, I don't want to be a part of. You know, and what's also amazing is Notre Dame's the only school that brought me to a mosque on my official visit. Wow. I became a better Muslim at Notre Dame because I was around people of faith who understood respect, who understood to include others who really practiced unconditional love. You know, I have a friend, Tiana Patterson, who says, you know, if your love has conditions, I don't want it. And that's something I think that a lot of us can hear. And Michigan has, you know, they have Muslim instructors, they have Muslim, you know, students, they had Muslim football players, basketball players, but I didn't get introduced to any of them. But literally the first thing Notre Dame did, we stopped on the way back from the airport and went to a mosque where one of the women's basketball coaches who was Muslim met me at the mosque and said, hey, here's where you would be able to pray on Fridays. I mean, come on, man. And then that situation that you mentioned happens. They beat Michigan. And a guy was storming the field, just kind of in awe. Hey, I'm a high school kid on this, you know, magical football field. The guy says, hey, you know, you come, I know who you are. I know why you're here. If you come here, you'll be more than a number. You'll be a part of the family. I'm like, wow. I mean, this place is different. They see me. They, they, they want me to be a part of not just football, but, you know, talking to Coach Willingham, they wanted me to get a degree. I mean, they were the only school that brought me to a mosque and talked about me actually graduating as a as an expectation. That's where I wanted to be. I wanted to compete on the field and off. And I wanted to compete in a community where I could be myself. And Notre Dame, Notre Dame was that community. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. John always talks about this. He's uh, involved in a Ph.D. program, so he, he's not able to make it sometimes. But he he asked a really poignant question at this point in time. It's always been poignant, I think, as a college recruiter. I wanted them to come for the major and I wanted them to visit mm-hmm. lots of schools and ask questions to every coach. And um, because I wanted them to be fully uh, 100% comfortable with their final decision, but I wanted them to come for me selfishly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, but are we in a different time now where coaches really have to not just placate to the players, but to be sensitive to, uh, during this racial reckoning, especially to, to not just players of color, but, but uh, all the players, wherever they're from, whatever their diverse backgrounds are, because um, HBCs are more in the mix now. Um, yeah. Power fives aren't necessarily going to get all the top players, the transfer portal. Um, but when someone comes on campus, do coaches really have to have a, a different, not just showing a, a locker with the potential Jersey of theirs in the locker room. Like they have to talk to them about what the culture is going to be like outside of the sport, because that's what the players demand now, not to mention likeness and all the other things that are going on, you know? 
Well, you know, why miss that opportunity, right? Why miss an opportunity to show a player, you know, like, like as you've shown me in this interview, how much you know about them and how much you want them to be a part of what you're doing. Because um, you'll lose to somebody who does take advantage of that opportunity, right? And, and I understand why you coaches that didn't like the transfer. I love the transfer pool. You know why? It keeps coaches honest. Yep. I mean, my coach at Notre Dame literally told me, he goes, Ryan, we don't have a single offensive tackle. I don't know what we're going to do next year if you don't come to Notre Dame. Well, I got to Notre Dame, there's six offensive tackles. You know what I'm saying? Which I'm fine with, but, like, let's not lie to each other. <laughs> I, you know, my yeah. favorite book to write in the future is going to be The Lies Told During Recruiting. And, you know, the truth that you and I know, some coaches end up recruiting players they don't want. And that has to stop, right? And, yeah. and I, I feel for coaches these days because now you have to have Instagram and Twitter and you got to like those things. I mean, back in the day, it was just a phone call, right? Um, videographers. Yeah, yeah videographers. Yeah. But whether, but whether or not it's an athlete or you're recruiting somebody as an employee, why would you miss the opportunity to learn about them and what's important to them and show them that you've learned that? And also there's space for them to be themselves in your community. Yeah, you but win. Yeah. I, you do I, that. Yeah. I agree with you, but th this is something that I also heard when I was listening to somebody talk the other day, you have a lot of old school coaches and you have a lot of younger generation Z or X or whatever it is. And so there's not a mutual understanding of an old school philosophy or method of teaching and a new school instant gratification kind of kid that cares more than just the sport. And so I think this is where a lot of times uh, there's a disconnect. We hope you enjoyed part one of the interview with former Super Bowl champion Ryan Harris here in the Sports Deli. You don't want to miss part two with Ryan where he discusses his opinions about Tom Brady and whether or not he should be more outspoken about the Black Lives Matter movement, what he's learned in the booth as a color commentator for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish Radio Network, his book, and he will discuss how and his opinions about his book. And finally, we will finish with our very famous rapid fire, this or that segment that you don't want to miss. Remember, your voice matters when fighting systemic racism. Read a book, acknowledge your white privilege, watch a movie about institutional racism, call your local or state representatives, and or have a conversation with someone that doesn't look like you. We have to change the economic, educational, police, housing, prison, and voting suppression narratives that currently need to be changed in this country. And the only way to do that is to listen and learn and then help be a part of the mobilization and change that we want to see. Remember, you can always send us an email to thesportsdeli at gmail.com. Until next time, please mask up still. Remember, Black Lives Matter. Peace.